0: Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're glad you're here. This is a community of faith. Our values are search for truth and meaning. Our values are to be a welcoming community to people of all socioeconomic and racial backgrounds, gender identification, sexual preference, political affiliation, Etc. That is what we are about. We are about growth, development, justice. Well, you can see it on the wall, and you'll hear it later. If you are a visitor with us, we're very glad you're here, and we ask that you sign a visitor card. If you have come often, we're very glad you're here, too. If you're a member, we're glad you're here. And if you would like to become a member of this community, Please know that we would be delighted to have you as a member. It involves meeting with me or taking a class and then signing a book. And you are then a member of this covenantal community. And now will you please say our chalice-lighting words together. In the light of truth and in the warmth of love, we gather to
1: seek, to find, and to share This reading comes to us from Edna St. Vincent Millay. To Jesus on his birthday. For this your mother sweated in the cold. For this you bled upon the bitter tree. A yard of tinsel ribbon bought and sold. A paper wreath. A day at home for me. The merry bells ring out. The people kneel. Up goes the preacher before the crowd, with voice of honey and with eyes of steel, droning your humble gospel to the proud. Nobody listens. Less than the wind that blows are all your words to us you died to save. O Prince of Peace, O Sharon's dewy rose, how mute you lie within your vaulted grave, The stone the angel rolled away with tears is back upon your mouth these thousand years. Join me in affirming our mission statement. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice.
0: Our reading this morning comes from a story I wrote called The Wisdom Tree in a book called Broken Buddha. I dragged myself to an early morning theme talk, even though it was the last day of a week at church camp. And I was tired of staying up late singing with friends and dancing my full head off. A panel of old timers was gathered. They were talking about the early days of this camp that had now grown to about a thousand Unitarian Universalists coming together every July on the campus of Virginia Tech. Here's a story that stuck in my mind. There was a teacher who used to come to the camp every summer, a man who could become Thomas Jefferson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, or Theodore Parker. He would bring his class to sit under a large oak tree out on the quad, and the conversation would range over history, philosophy, and theology. Summer after summer, the folks would look forward to that class, to sitting under what they came to call the wisdom tree. They would look forward to having the kind of conversations in which you could hear and say things that surprise and delight even you. The summer night, one summer night during the church camp, a storm came through. As the people slept, winds and rain whipped the campus. Lightning flashed and struck hard. It struck close. In the morning, daylight revealed. The wisdom tree scattered in splinters on the ground. As the grounds crew came to clear it, clean it away, church people came from every corner of the campus to circle around. One by one, they asked to take a piece of the tree home with them. This story struck me. I think that there is wisdom available to us and that it shows up in history, in theology, poetry, music, art, scripture, conversation, nature, and ritual. Individuals have a spark of the divine inside, an inner wisdom that, related to sanely, responsibly, and in community, will lead each person to truth and peace. Sometimes the place you used to find wisdom gets destroyed. People fail you. A church disappoints you. New information strips away your feeling about a scripture. It's as if your wisdom tree is lying in splinters. We're tempted to take our piece of wisdom home with us and put it in a place of honor, savoring and celebrating the little piece of wisdom we have, pulling it out wherever there's a new question, a new issue, acting as if That piece of wisdom is self-sustaining, and as if it is enough on its own to sustain us. Acting like this, we're forgetting the crucial next step. What is needed is to bring our piece of wisdom tree back together with the others, and stand together on the roots of our wisdom tree, on the roots of what wisdom we have. We do have it inside us, but it is not enough to hold and savor just the one piece. It needs to be added to the others. You can't walk a good spiritual path all by yourself. You have to be in relationship to a community. Your wisdom needs to have fresh life breathed into it by touching it again and again to its source, by bringing it together with the piece of wisdom others carry with them. Then, if lightning strikes, if all the places you used to go were ruined, I'll hold up my piece, you just hold up your piece of wisdom, and we'll find each other. season of holy days when most religions which originate in the northern hemisphere are celebrating the return of the light from the darkness. The days have gotten longer, uh, the days have gotten shorter and the nights have gotten longer and now now it starts to, to turn around in a little while. There are celebrations throughout the, the land. The, the Jewish Religion celebrates Hanukkah, which is a celebration of a miracle of light where a small vial of holy oil burned for eight days instead of the few hours that it might ordinarily have burned, and the Hindus are celebrating Diwali, and the pagans are celebrating solstice, and the Christians are celebrating the birth of the sun at the same time of year that their Roman rulers were celebrating the birth of the sun. So... Nobody knows about the actual historical truth of these faith stories. That's why we call them faith stories, to differentiate them from fact stories. But um, faith stories have their own kind of truth. You know, it's a spirit truth. It's a truth that tells you about um, how human beings are put together, how the universe is put together, how to have a good life, how to live well with one another and with the divine. And so I'm going to be talking about the faith story today, In Hebrew and Christian scriptures, there are only two sentences that are declarative sentences about God, that are translated, God is. And one is, God is love, and one is, God is light. Some of you really don't care how the divine is described in scriptures, and that's okay. But for those of you who do, let me go down a little bit more deeply. It doesn't say that the divine is loving Doesn't say the divine is like light, it says God is love and God is light. It sounds almost more like it's talking about a cellular level than a theoretical one. In one gospel of the Christian scriptures, the Gospel of John, where Jesus is spoken of um, as if he is part of the divine, he's called the Word, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, many of you have heard that. that. is a translation of the Greek word, logos. And logos implies much more than just word. It implies reason. It implies um, the underlying principles by which the universe is put together, the structure of things, logos. And scholars think that that the guy who wrote, or the woman who wrote, we don't know, who wrote the gospel, was uh, born a Jew and... Uh, educated in the whole Greek-Roman system of of education, as many people were. And so he knows both the cultures and the word that's translated word from Hebrew is dabar, and it doesn't just mean word either. It has a connotation of a creative force, creative power. In, in the Jewish religion, um, the universe wasn't born from a goddess or from a wind blowing or from a sea dropping in the ground. The universe was born from a word. The word of God has the power to create things. So in another place, I'm, I'm using the scriptures to interpret each other, um, which is, I think, a better practice than just thinking about, oh, what does this remind me of? Um, <laughs> there's another place in that same gospel where the writer calls the spirit of God the spirit of truth. And so you have all of these descriptors for God. You have love, you have light, you have reason. You have the underlying principles of the way things are put together, and you have truth. And I know it's unusual to have a Unitarian minister talk about the Father and uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit as if it were a Trinitarian sermon. It's not, um, but it is Christmas. So... So, what I'm talking about this morning is truth because I'm doing a sermon series on the Unitarian Universalist seven principles, and we're we're to the fourth one. And the fourth one says that we'll affirm and promote a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. So, free and responsible search for truth and meaning is what we're about here. So I'm going to talk about truth. And I think that when you when you look at some of these holy words in this holy season, you see that the truth has some kind of generative power. You find truth, and it changes things. You find truth, and it starts to grow. You find truth, and you start kind of a a relationship with it instead of truth being uh, something to be conquered or something to be consumed. You don't just say, I feel like some truth today, or, oh, good, I found some truth today. Hmm, that was good. Let me have some more. It doesn't, it shouldn't work like that. So, I'm going to tell you a little something true that I found out. And um, it changes how we think about the birth story in Luke. Because it it kind of nudges us and reminds us that um, everybody's blind to their own blind spots. You can't tell when you're missing something because of your own culture. And so, what I want to tell you is that someone from the Palestinian culture would read the whole story of the birth of Jesus in Luke, they would read it completely differently from the way we read it. Now, I'm leaving aside the question of whether did it really happen or not. Today, I don't care. But, um, what I want to talk to you about is the whole cultural way that we read scriptures and how if we have our cultural blinders off, we see completely different stuff. Um, So, when I found this out, I, I really was kind of torn about whether to talk about it or not because I, I um, you know how when you hear people tell stories of like the way a marriage happened or the way a divorce happened or uh, the birth of a child or the beginning of a job or the end of a job or the start of a church, you hear stories about how it happened and you think, well, that's a great story. Um, it didn't actually happen that way. Or it kind of did, but it was more complicated than that. But I I don't want to tell the complicating piece because that'll make the story lose that sweet shape that it's got. It'll, it'll lose that, that kick and punch line or that moral at the end. I, I'm just going to keep quiet about it because I don't want to ruin the story. Well, I feel like that about this. Because in churches all over the place, the children are getting their shepherd costumes together and the angels are getting their wings and the kids who are going to play Mary and Joseph are already picked out, and baby Jesus for this year is chosen, and um, it's one part that you can't play year after year. You... <laughs> and the story is told, you know, Mary is pregnant, and they're on the um, the donkey, and they're going down the road from Galilee to Bethlehem, and um, is she going to go into labor or not? And she's right at the end of her pregnancy, and they go to this town, and they knock on the door of the of the hotel, the inn, and um, and they're told there's no room in the inn. Go to the next one. So they knock on the door of the next one, and from inn to inn, the innkeepers always say, there's no room here. And finally, one, um, am I kind, innkeeper says, well, there's a stable out back. You can stay um, in the stable. It's not exactly what the... What the story says in the Bible, but it's the way we read the story. It's the way we read the story. Um, So Mary ends up giving birth in the stable, surrounded by animals, and her husband, and um, there are angels somewhere, but they're far away uh, while she's giving birth, and the shepherds are somewhere outside. Um, which probably means it was spring because it's too cold there for them to be outside this time of year. But anyway, that's another story. And, um, so she's, she puts the baby in the manger and, and the baby's in the hay and the, and the cow is breathing warm, milk scented breath onto the baby and it's very nice but lonely. And, and the human race should be ashamed of itself. And you hear sermon after sermon about, you know, don't be like that bad innkeeper, uh, who, who, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm doing my grandfather. Um, <laughs> you have to make room in your heart for the baby. Make room in your heart, and that's true. We have to make room in our heart for spirit. Yes, absolutely true. And it's a very satisfying story too, especially for early Christians who were all from the lower classes. Because all the comfortable people who had their houses and they had their rooms, they had their reservations, they had their credit cards, they turn the the divine one away, and the divine one has to has to be born way in the back, in the dark, and the lonely, despised and rejected from the beginning, because human beings are so selfish. Have you heard that sermon before? Yeah, yeah, because that's the way we thought the story went, but maybe not. Because you can read the same words and you can see completely different stuff once you find out what Palestinian culture is actually like. There's a New Testament scholar who teaches at one of the seminaries out west named Kenneth Bailey. And he not only has a doctorate in New Testament studies, but he he grew up in the Palestinian culture. He He has written books in Arabic and in English, He's got graduate degrees in Arabic language and literature. He spent 40 years teaching in Egypt and Lebanon. And in dialogue with his Palestinian Christian professor friends, they illuminate for us what Palestinian culture actually was like at that time. And you know how they know, because Palestinian culture really didn't change that much for the thousands of years from the time that this faith story is set, until the Second World War. A Palestinian family in a village lived in a house that looked like this. It had two rooms, kind of raised up on a platform of stone or wood, and around the platform, the non-raised part, was for their animals. So you have your animals, you have a cow, you have two sheep, maybe if you're rich, you have a goat, and you you bring them in at night, and they sleep with the family, and it's... um. It's warmer that way and safer for them and for everybody. Then during the day, you leave them outside. You put them in the courtyard and then bring them back in at night, etc. They need raised up mangers. And so what you do is in the stone on the, on the edge of the family's living platform, you dig out a little hollow. You put the food in there and they lean over and eat it. So they're right there. All right. So that's the first thing you're going to want to know. The second thing you're going to want to know is hospitality is the highest value in Palestinian culture. Always has been. The highest value. It is a tremendous shame, not only on your family, but on the entire town, if you are an inhospitable jerk. Okay, so Joseph and Mary are coming down to the city of David because Joseph is of the house and lineage of David, which means... He's got family everywhere in that town. And the word that's translated in, in our story, is the Greek word kataluma, which means guest room. If you're going to talk about a commercial inn, it's a completely different word. And Luke, the same writer, talks about a commercial inn later on when he's talking about... um, The Good Samaritan, you know, when the guy binds up the the beaten up guy's wounds and puts him in a commercial inn, that's um, uh, Pandokion. So, Cataluma is not Pandokion. There were words for either one. They didn't have a shortage of words back then. They were not stupid back then. But we just had translators who were Western in their mind. And in the Western world, um, the animals couldn't have been in the house. So it must have been in the back. See yeah, how just such a simple thing we just don't even think about it, but it changes everything. So, um, if you're interested in reading, it's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, interesting book. So what we're learning is, okay, Mary and Joseph came to his family, so she could give birth there. And they were probably, there wasn't any room in the guest room, so they put them this far away from the guest room with the animals. That's it. It was a matter of a foot. Instead of way back outside of the lonely and the dark because everybody's too too selfish to to give them any room. It was just like, oh man, we're going to have to squish. Okay. (laughs) And the baby's going to be right here. And so... And probably she wasn't like right on the edge of having the baby when they got there. As I said, they're not stupid. So probably three weeks or so before she was going to um, give birth. It just says in the, in, the, in the scripture, it just says, and the days came for her to be delivered. It didn't mean, man, she was in labor right then. But see how we read it. We just want a better story. So we need a little drama, a little tension. She's going to make it in time? Yeah. Yeah, she made it in time. Like three weeks? <laughs> they were relaxing. They were drinking iced tea. They had their feet up on the porch. They were playing with the dogs. And then the days came for her to be delivered. There wasn't any room for the baby in the, in the guest room, so they put, put the baby with the, with the animals. And, um, and so, you know, here's the deal with the story changing. Everybody's shaped by the stories that we tell. And every religion has stories that it tells. And I think it behooves us to have the truest stories that we can, not only in our religion but also in our families and also our personal stories. For example, your story shapes your experience. If you tell yourself, oh, man, I don't have any luck at all. I'm the most unlucky person I know. Then what are you going to notice in your life? You're going to notice all the stuff that goes wrong. Am I right? And if you have a family that says, Oh, you know, nothing good ever happens for our people. We're just surrounded by jerks. Everybody's a jerk, and you know, just do your best, and you know, then you die. I'm not. <laughs> that story is going to shape your experience. Um, if you if you have a church that says, "Oh, we can't sing. We we just don't sing very well," you're probably not going to sing very well because because you're hesitant. You're not confident. You're you're not singing out. Like your heart's full of joy, you're singing out because you're embarrassed because you know people in your church, they don't sing very well. Are you with me? Okay, so a religion is telling this story for a thousand years or more. The divine comes into the world and is despised and rejected from the beginning. It is born out in the lonely dark. And so if you want the divine to be born in you, you better go out in the lonely dark to be by yourself and just wait for the divine to come to you when you're ashamed and despised and rejected. Have you heard that sermon before? I have. It just makes the whole mindset of everything different when you go, I don't know what the sermon would be like, because this is like my first year trying to preach about this story, where you would say, maybe the divine comes to you when you finally found your people. Maybe the divine comes to you when you're surrounded by aunts, uncles, Cousins, friends, animals. Maybe the animals will, um, will if you treat them right, they'll, they'll, they'll treat you right. Maybe if you, you know, they'll loan you what you need. <laughs> maybe your family, maybe if, if, if people from your family are coming from far away, you know, you make room for them, you squish in your heart, you make room for your family, and then maybe the divine will be born into your midst, surrounded by noisy conversation, laughter, and gentle lamplight. Who knows? What the story would be. But it's different, isn't it? There's no shame in it. There's no, oh, you bad human beings. There's like, oh, man, we're doing our best. You know, sometimes you just got to squish. Yeah. It's not as dramatic a story, but it's a kinder story. And maybe a truer story, which is what I'm interested in. A truer story. And furthermore, I've lost myself here. And furthermore, (laughs) I I think I love the wise men, which is why I put them on the front of the bulletin. The wise men teach us about a search for truth, I think. And if I were telling the story of the wise men and talking to you about a search for truth, I would say they show us that you probably don't want to search for truth by yourself. They came with their buddies. You come with your buddies to search for truth. What's wrong with that? You don't have to go
1: out in the cold and the dark, be alone. You
0: can find truth with your buddies. And you follow the light. You find some light. You go toward it. It's not just for dying anymore. You know. You go, you find some light, you move toward it. You don't know where to move, you look around. What's illuminated for me? Oh, it's over there. Let me go there with my buddies. Other thing I love about the wise men is that they got tricked by the powers that be. You know, the people who are in power really have no interest in more truth coming out because the truth that's there has put them on the top and they want to keep it that way. And so King Herod, you know, the wise men came to the king and said, we're searching for the royal light, the truth, the logos, the word that has been born into your country. And Herod goes, oh, please let me know when you find them, because I would like to kiss, um, uh, kiss his little baby head. And the wise men, being wise men, they went home by a different way so that Herod never found them. The other thing that I really like about the wise men is that they did not come seeking for the truth like rude guests empty-handed. They brought presents. I think that's cool. You're going searching for the truth, you bring some presents. Why? Because the truth is not a consumable. It's not something that you go, as I said before, ooh, truth, Hmm. Delightful. Let's have another. Mm, truth. No. Truth. I think if we learn from this story, truth is something that if you find it, you give it stuff. You, you know that even though you're a king and it's a, a little tiny thing, it's bigger than you are. It's truth. You give it stuff. And you go, thank you so much for coming to see me. And um, you have a relationship with it. You don't just eat it and go, that was good. You don't just hold it at home and pull it out when you're in a good argument with your friends and go, ha-ha, truth, I won. No, you have a relationship with it, according to this story, according to the wise men. So um, there are a lot of people who say a search for truth and meaning is a kind of a bland principle for a church to have. I think they've never found any truth before. Because if you're searching for truth, you better put your crash helmet on. It's going to change things. The truth, oh my goodness, the truth is alive. And the truth is going to explode in you like a, like a fireworks with seeds in them. And uh, they're going to land everywhere. And who knows what's going to start to grow. You've found some truth before, I think. And it changes you. It starts to change things. Suddenly you can't do the same things you used to do anymore. It ruins certain relationships and illuminates others truth really does make a difference in your life and so if you have a principle that you're going to search for truth and find it you're having a principle that says I'm open to being changed I'm open to being I'm open to being shaken up I'm open to the truth demanding things of me stirring things up I'm just, I'm open to maybe even just exploding like firework and seeds will go everywhere from me maybe I'll go everywhere and maybe more wisdom trees will grow. To the gift, to be simple and to the gift to be free, we receive as a gift the simple pleasures of seeing a candle burning in the window, of seeing the sky and the trees, of hearing the beautiful music, of seeing the children's faces, seeing one another's faces. May we be blessed by all these gifts. May we be blessed by our giving. May we take our blessedness out into the world, which needs it so badly. May we be a blessing. Go in peace.
1: This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church
0: of Austin. For more information, visit our website at
1: www.austinuu.com dot O-R-G